Everybody else, while the kids are being dismissed, please get out your Bibles and turn back and then to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21, one more time, page 896, but we're also going to move a little bit further this morning on to page 897. Let's add verses 22 to 30 to what I said that I wanted to do last week. So John 10, 11 through 28. I am the good shepherd. We have learned much about Christ through this metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep. A shepherd cares for sheep. How does Christ care for us? We have now come up with eight things, eight things that the shepherd does for the sheep, eight things that Christ does for our souls. The shepherd owns, calls, knows, leads, feeds, is with, saves, and dies. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And all of that is the how of verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ is the abundant life. We find abundant life only in him, only through him, and particularly only through his death in our place. Have you found abundant life in Christ? Are you experiencing abundant life in Christ? We talked about this last week. Why do, why do so many of us struggle with this? Why here is this wonderful offer of abundant life and yet our experience of that falls so short? For me, I know for so long I was looking for something more, something I had missed some PhD advanced level Christian stuff. If I could just find the secret, then I'd be good to go. All kinds of experiencing of the abundant life. It took me way too long to realize that what I really needed was to go right back to the basics. What I really needed was a return and a refocus on the foundation. I didn't need some new other thing that I had missed. I needed the main thing that I knew but was still so prone to minimize and miss. It sounds cliche, it sounds patronizingly commonsensical, but it's not. It is everything. Christ is everything. Christ is Christianity. That really is what we miss and struggle to really understand. John Owen, I'm further convinced that we desperately need the Puritans today. In his great book, the last book, his last work, The Glory of Christ, Owen says this. He says, the essence of faith consists in Paul's. How would you fill in that blank? The essence of faith consists in... What would your answer be to that? The essence of faith consists in believing in Jesus. I guess that's not a bad answer. Of course, that's, that's true. But here's what Owen says. He says, the essence of faith consists in a due ascription of glory to God. The essence of faith consists in a due ascription of glory, a proper ascription of glory to God. That's a potential game changer, if Owen is right. And Owen is always right. Uh, Of course, we chiefly ascribe glory to God in seeing that glory in Christ and trusting in Christ. But it could be helpful for us as we seek to better understand faith as more than believing some stuff about this guy, Jesus. Faith is ascribing glory 
to God. That would then make the essence of unbelief not seeing the wisdom and the glory and the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. The essence of unbelief then is not glorifying God in Christ in and above all things. And so then Owen goes on to say that the principal acting of the life of faith, again, the main thing, the most important action of the Christian life of faith is it consists in the frequency of our thoughts concerning Christ. The frequency of our thoughts concerning this Christ. For hereby Christ lives in us, but this we cannot do unless we have frequent thoughts of Him and converse with Him. That's what I am convinced that many of us miss. That's what I know that I often miss. This is where the disconnect is. Our thoughts of this Christ are often so little in light when He is so wonderful and weighty. Remember, we become what we behold, and yet we give so little of ourself, our time, our thought, our attention to the Christ that we say is life itself. Do you believe in Jesus? Good. Yes. Do you have frequent thoughts of Him and converse with Him? Does your faith consist in ascribing glory to God? For the last couple of weeks, following Spurgeon, we've been talking in terms of the preciousness of Christ. The preciousness of Christ. That may not be the best term these days. It didn't have some of the same baggage when Spurgeon used it 150 years ago. Today we sentimentalize this term. We may think of precious in terms of cute and cuddly babies. Oh, she's so precious, right? That's kind of how we use the word precious. No, that's not what I mean when I ask if Christ is precious to you. Think of a precious gem, a priceless gem. When I ask if Christ is precious to you, I mean his value and his worth. Do you recognize and respond to his matchless, infinite worth? Is Christ precious to you? Is he that which is of ultimate value to you? Why is Christ so precious? Here's the sermon. This is our goal this morning. Our answer this morning is going to be that Christ is so precious because Christ is so gracious. Christ is so precious because Christ is so gracious. Again, that's another word that we have somewhat ruined a little bit. Uh, we're heading back south for a little bit uh, while to see some family and vacation. And when, when we head back south, that, the southern accent starts to come back out again a little bit. Nicole will make fun of me when we come back and the southern accent's there. But in the south, gracious is like a sweet old lady swear, right? That's what gracious has become. It's like, my gracious, right? That's kind of one of the, the swears down there. No, that's not what we're talking about. Nor is gracious just being polite or nice. Gracious here is God's showing to us and giving to us his favor, his blessing, his goodness. As Peter laid out so well this morning in Sunday school, it's God giving us uh, his very self and his presence when he, when his goodness and his blessing has been entirely unsought and undeserved by us. Christ is everything and Christ is gracious Therefore, grace is everything. Christ is precious because Christ is gracious. And my argument this morning is that part of the reason that we miss the infinite preciousness of Christ 
is because we miss the absolute graciousness of Christ. If you could but better see that all is grace, then you could better see Christ and love Christ and experience the abundant life that is found in Christ. The grace is key. And so, as I said last week, we're doing something a little bit different today. We're going to go back to this wonderful metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep, of Christ as the good shepherd of our souls, to look specifically at what he reveals to us here about himself, particularly this morning, about his gracious self. And so this morning is the doctrine of the good shepherd's grace. There's nothing more important for you to know than the grace of God. Here in John chapter 10 is just one of the clearest presentations of the grace of God. See the preciousness of Christ in the graciousness of Christ. We have five points this morning. Yes, those five points. But let God's word in the terminology of this metaphor lead you there. Point number one, we're going to start with the sin of the sheep. Then we will see point number two, the father gives the sheep. Point number three, we've already discussed how the shepherd dies for the sheep. Then point number four, we'll see again the shepherd calls the sheep. And finally, five, good news. Those silly, sinful sheep never perish. Those are the five doctrines of grace, all found in this text and and throughout God's word, of course. Christ is precious because Christ is gracious. That's the goal this morning. So we'll come back to this text and we'll walk through it more expositionally, specifically next week to finish John chapter 10. But for this week, again, we're specifically walking through the doctrines of grace from Jesus' teaching here. John chapter 10, I will read for you, picking up in verse 11, and we will read through verse 30. John 10, verses 11 through 30. This is the most important part. If it's here, you have to believe it. If it's not here, doesn't matter. Is it here? John 10, verse 11. This is what the good shepherd wants to say to you today. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you would, let's pause. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Gracious Heavenly Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe our only hope and help in this time is the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given to us your word. We thank you that you have given to us your spirit that works and speaks through your word. And Father, that is our only request now. Father, that is my only hope as a minister of your word, is that your spirit would work through that word. Father, show us Christ. Father, show us grace. May this not be an argument. May this not be an intellectual exercise. Father, may this be a means of seeing the glory of Christ in the grace of Christ so that we may find great comfort and hope and joy and abundant life in Him. Father, may my only goal to be to magnify Jesus Christ, to draw and give all glory to You and to draw all people to Him. Father, please help the preaching of Your Word. Please help the hearing of Your Word. Father, show us Christ. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Point number one, we start with the sin of the sheep. We have looked at this metaphor for three weeks now, and hopefully we've got the picture. A metaphor is a figure of speech. It is a comparison for the purpose of description. Metaphors reveal. Christ is revealing himself to us through this beautiful picture of the good shepherd who perfectly and sacrificially cares for his sheep. This is who Christ is revealed in what Christ does. This is how Christ cares for us. And what we're emphasizing this morning is the absolutely gracious character of his care. And we're emphasizing it through five points. The five points. These are often referred to as the doctrines of grace. Uh, And again, I just want to be clear. Uh, The term doctrines of grace has become a sort of a secret code. It's sort of a a euphemism in a sense. What is a euphemism? Well, a euphemism is a mild word or a more indirect word used in the place of a more harsh or potentially offensive word. And so just so that we're clear, when I say the doctrines of grace, what we're really talking about, what I mean is Calvinism. that's, That's what I mean here. Whenever you hear someone say doctrines of grace, you know that they secretly mean Calvinism, but they're scared to say it. And I get that, and I understand that. Listen, we rarely use that word here because there are all kinds of misconceptions, because it's not really that helpful. You probably won't hear me use that word in this pulpit for a long time after today. But it is kind to be clear. And terms and titles can be helpful identifiers. I can just say the word grace and everyone will nod along and agree. But when I start to define biblically what I mean by the word grace, well, that can become a different story. 
So what I want to do this morning is clarify what grace is. But the term itself, Calvinism, isn't all that important because it's not about this man, nor should it be. We don't really care about Calvin. His name has just been attached as an identifier to a system of thought, a system of thought that I believe is biblical. And that's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what he says. What does God in his word say? That's the only question that matters this morning. As Spurgeon says, Calvinism means nothing more than the place of the eternal God at the head of all things. It means looking at everything through its relation to God and his glory. By Calvinism, we just mean the gospel. We mean the gospel of grace and the gospel of glory. What I mean when I use that term, rarely when I use it, is I mean that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's it. Because that's what we believe the Bible teaches. That is what the shepherd who dies for the sheep in John chapter 10 teaches. This is the God who saves sinners. Thou must save and thou alone. That is all that I mean by the term Calvinism. The absolute sovereign grace and glory of God. And we're taking this opportunity right now to talk about it, not just because we like to, not because we like to be obnoxious and talk about this thing because it's fun to argue about theology. No, it's because it's all over the text. And I am utterly convinced that what you need is the grace of God, and these doctrines are all about the grace of God. This is arguably the doctrines of grace text in the whole of Scripture, and so I just couldn't ignore it. And so those doctrines of grace are often explained in these five points, and we just don't have time to get into all the history for it. But it's not as if Calvin ever laid out these five points, summarizing the doctrine and said, how can I make a flower out of this thing? And then he came up with this whole kind of flower kind of system. No, Calvin was long dead before this became a thing. And it wasn't even Calvinists that came up with it. In the year 1610, in the Netherlands, the followers of a Dutch professor and pastor, Jacob Arminius, they drafted a protest called the Remonstrance, and that protest consisted of five points. They were five points on which they disagreed with Reformation doctrine. And so, on a side note, if you're not a Calvinist and you're like, oh, we don't use names. No, if you're not a Calvinist, you're generally an Arminian, named after this man, Jacob Arminius. So you're stuck with some dead guy's name either way. It's not the name or the man that matters. It's which system most faithfully reflects and reveals and teaches God's word. Which system better reveals the glory of God through the revelation of God's grace in God's Son. And there's no competition. God in his glory, that's the goal. Keep that in mind. That's the point. What most gives God all the glory? The doctrines of grace. But these doctrines were first formulated in response to this Arminian protest 400 years ago. This denial, or at least redefinition, of God's grace. The the five points of the remonstrance were basically this. Number one, man is free and able to choose God according to man's own free will. Man's will is free and able to choose God. Point number two, God chooses those whom he knows will use that free will to choose him. So his election is conditional 
upon their choice of him. Their third point was that Jesus died for all and his death makes salvation possible for anyone who uses their free will to choose him. Their fourth point was that the Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus, but man can use his free will to overpower and resist the Holy Spirit. And then number five, oh, be careful. Number five, their fifth point was a true Christian using that same free will can fall away and lose their salvation. Those are the five points of the remonstrance. Again, just very briefly and generally. So it's, it's, that's an insufficient summary. But these doctrines of grace that are infamous today were composed in response to that because those who wrote this response saw this as an outright denial of the sovereignty and the grace of God. The five points were a necessary response to this dangerous and unbiblical teaching that undercut the grace of God that is everything. And that response is referred to as the canons of Dort. Dortrecht was a city. Again, you don't need to know all these things. But these five doctrines have been conveniently, though not always helpfully, summarized with the equally loved and hated TULIP acronym. So when we're talking about the five points, the doctrines of grace... That's what we're talking about. Let's run through them. Again, the question that matters, are they in the text? What does God's word teach? What most magnifies the glory of God? That's what I want you to consider this morning. My contention, you will not find Christ truly precious until you find him absolutely gracious. And the doctrines of grace help get us there. They help us understand his grace and it helps us love the good shepherd of grace. And it is there in him that you will find abundant life. And so our goal for just these next few minutes is for the doctrines of grace to help you find abundant life in Christ. You've got your five points there. You've got the headings in your bulletin. I was being a little sneaky. The, The sin of the sheep doesn't sound very controversial. But what we're talking about here is point number one is total depravity. If you want to fill that in there, total depravity. The sin of the sheep is the doctrine of total depravity. Well, where's that in the text? The sheep. That's where. It's in the very metaphor itself. Consider that Christ doesn't choose a metaphor describing us as lions, strong and powerful, or dolphins, you know, like intelligent and playful, or puppies, cute and cuddly, arguably, arguably cute and cuddly. I'm not a puppy person. He doesn't choose any of these cool animals with nice qualities. He chooses sheep. I was reading one commentator this week. Again, I'm not trying to cause arguments or whatever, but he was playfully arguing um, that the existence of sheep proves that like the current formulation of entirely materialistic neo-Darwinism proves that it's false because sheep are so stupid, right? Where did these things come from, right? How did these sheep develop? Uh, They are not fit for anything. Uh, No, sheep are dumb. It's, It's a joke. It wasn't a very good joke. No, Jesus chooses sheep. Sheep stink. Sheep are helpless. Sheep are stupid. I said last week that sheep equals sin. And that's... That's me. I'm the sheep. We read in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. And the verse before that describes that we, we sheep, with the terms of transgressions and iniquities. 
So sheep equals sin. The doctrine of total depravity is assumed in the very metaphor of people as sheep. And it's assumed in the central point of this metaphor, in the supreme revelation of the goodness of the shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why? Remember Psalm 23. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is saying, I am Yahweh. I am the transcendent, almighty creator God in whom all things hold together. And then he says, I die. So why does God die? It's because of the sheep. It's because of the problem of the sheep. The sin of the sheep was that serious and that significant. Your sin could only be forgiven, only be sufficiently paid or atoned for through the death of God himself in your place. That's total depravity. And again, by total depravity, all we mean following scripture is that sin affects and messes up every part of us. We are not as bad as we could possibly be, but we are comprehensively affected by sin in the whole of our nature. Our thinking is messed up. Our feeling is messed up. Our willing and choosing is messed up, all affected by sin. And second, then, total depravity means that we can do nothing that is ultimately good. We can do nothing that pleases God or commends us to God. Fallen man may do plenty of relative good, but he will never do that which is really good. He will never choose God or love God or honor God or glorify God. And so when we talk about total depravity, what we mean is that fallen man is totally unable to do anything about his own sinful condition. Unable to do anything or contribute anything to his desperately needed salvation. That's why the good shepherd comes to lay down his life for the sheep. The problem is that bad. Do we see this idea in scripture? Everywhere. Genesis 6-5, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. How comprehensive that is. Not some intentions, not most intentions, not 99. Every intention of the thought of man's heart is not somewhat evil or partially evil or, you know, a little mix of good and bad, sometimes only evil continually. That's what God says about our hearts. Romans 5 describes us with four adjectives, weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. This is how scripture repeatedly describes our condition. And just look around. Just read the news. Only total depravity explains Monday. Only total depravity explains the depths of the darkness in this world and the things that we're seeing if you pay any attention to what's going on around the world. Only Scripture and its doctrine of our sin and our depravity explains the, the wickedness and fallenness of mankind and of ourselves. We see it in our own hearts. Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what we just read. Dead in our sins. I mean, talk about total. Dead. That's total. Our problem was not spiritual sickness. Our problem was spiritual 
death. And a dead man can do nothing for himself. Dead doesn't do. And you have to start there because Scripture starts there. You have to get the problem right if you're going to get the solution right. You have to understand the seriousness of your situation if you are going to see and appreciate the preciousness of what Christ had to do to rescue you from that situation. That's the sin of the sheep. The doctrines of grace begins with the doctrine of sin. Do you know yourself in your sin? Do you understand the great gravity of that sin? That sin that separates you from God. That sin that the wages of is death because the God that separates you from his life. If this is true, if all we like sheep have gone astray, if we are dead in our sin, then the next four points logically follow. If this is true, everything that I'm about to say necessarily and logically follows. To change the four that follow, you have to change and redefine point one in some way. If the problem is so extreme, the solution must be equally extreme. If we are dead and dead doesn't do, then how is anyone saved? If all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, how could anyone get and gain life? Point number two. The father gives the sheep. Point number one establishes that the sheep have no hope in themselves There's nothing they can do to save themselves. Their hope must then be outside of themselves. Their hope must be a shepherd. But I want you to notice the order of the subjects in these five points. We're not to the shepherd yet. The shepherd and what the shepherd does comes in points three and four. We start with the sheep in point one. We start with man's problem. Then we move to the father in point two. And we begin to get to God's solution to man's problem. And that's the gospel. Man creates a problem. God provides the solution. Man creates a problem. God solves the problem. And it starts with God the Father giving the sheep. What does that mean? Look at the text. Look at verse 29. Again, we'll come back and pick up and do this expositionally next week to close up the chapter. Verse 29. Jesus is talking about the sheep. And he says... My Father who has given them to me. So that the sheep are in some way a gift from the Father to the Son. Remember, this is a metaphor. The sheep are a people. God's people. We started this whole chapter and metaphor with the first thing that the shepherd does for the sheep. The shepherd owns the sheep. The sheep are his. His possession. Here we see they are his possession by gift of the Father. Back up from verse 29 to verse 27. Look at verse 27. We see that again here in verse 27. My sheep. They're his. My sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28. If you don't get anything this morning, get verse 28. What does the shepherd do for the sheep that are his? Verse 28. I notice the verb. I give them. Eternal life. Verse 29, the father gives the sheep to the shepherd. Verse 28, the shepherd gives to the sheep eternal life. Which necessarily assumes and implies point one. They did not have eternal life prior to that. They were dead. They must be given life. It is a grace, a gift. Salvation is a gift. 
that God graciously gives to His people. And that must then mean that He has a people, that He has chosen a people to give to His Son and save. And so let's start, stop dancing around it. You're filling the blank there in point number two. This is the doctrine of unconditional election. Unconditional election. That's the second doctrine of grace. The Father gives to the Son a people. The Father, God, chooses whom he will save. Listen, we struggle with this one, and I know that. That's okay. The only question, is it biblical? Is the doctrine of election biblical? Yeah, of course it is. If you want to flip back to Ephesians, we can look at chapter 1 just for a second. We read Ephesians 2. It builds off of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is the foundation. And there in Ephesians 1, verse 4, Paul's pretty clear. Again, Christians submit to and believe what God reveals in his word. That's just by definition what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 4. He has chosen us, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's right there. God, the subject, chose the verb, the action, us, the object. Not we chose God, not flip it. God chose us. Look at verse 5. He, again, he's the subject again, God, predestined us, the object, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Don't miss this last part. According to the purpose of his will. The word elect just means to choose. To choose is to will. Our will is that which we choose with. To will something is to choose something. The text says that God chooses according to his will, not ours. And again, point one demands this. Point one makes this necessary. We are dead. Our wills are tainted by sin. Totally unable to will God or will good. We've seen this in detail in Romans chapter 9. If you want to flip back to your left a couple of pages. We've been in Romans 9, 10, and 11 on Thursdays. Again, what does God's word say? Romans 9, verse 15. God again is speaking. God is the subject, the actor. In Romans 9, 15, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This could not be more clear. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Not human will, but God's will. Again, we can have a hard time with it. We can struggle with it and wrestle with it. We can seek to want to understand it and learn, but it's just there. The the doctrine of God's election is simply the idea that God chooses whom will be saved. And just to be clear, every Christian has to believe in the doctrine of election because it's in the Bible. Right? We've just seen Paul say, God chooses. You have to believe in election. The question is, what do you believe about election? Is that election conditional? In other words, does God choose based upon something that he sees in you? Generally, it's presented as like God is omniscient, so he licks forward in time, and he sees, yeah, Juliet, she gets it right. She figures it out. She chooses me, so I choose her. Kind of sounds like a Pikachu thing. I choose you, right, because you kind of chose me, right? Is he looking forward and choosing us based upon something that we have done? Or, biblically, is it, I think, unconditional? 
to be truly gracious, it has to be unconditional. For it to be conditional, it's not ultimately gracious. Grace, by definition, cannot be based in any way on us or in anything that we do or choose. Because then ultimately it's dependent on Juliet. Then ultimately it's dependent on something that she has done that someone else has not done. The thing that distinguishes her from others is something within her that she has done. So the good news of the gospel is that while we were sinners, while we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive. Christ died for us. It's entirely his work, not ours. And that includes his choosing, not ours. The father giving the sheep to the shepherd is a demonstration of God's unconditional election. And so by unconditional, we just mean it's not based upon us. It's based upon him. It's not based upon our will. It's based upon his good, merciful, sovereign will. Unconditional election. You have to believe election. Is it conditional or unconditional? Look closely at verse 26. We'll do this more a little bit in detail next time. In verse 26, we've had a scene change. We'll we'll walk through that next week. But in verse 26, Jesus is talking to the religious authorities again. Those who refuse to believe in him. Here's the question. Why? Why ultimately do they not believe in him? Look at what the good shepherd says. Look at what Jesus himself says. He is speaking to the Pharisees, to the authorities. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Did you catch that? Look at that again. It's really important. Order is important. There is an order to the gospel. It's logical. It's important. Jesus doesn't say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. That's not what he says. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. In other words, there is something that comes before belief. There is a prior work. There is an act on God's part that precedes and enables our belief. And that is his free and gracious, unconditional election. We saw this back in chapter 6 as well. Flip back to John chapter 6, just a couple of pages. Look at verse 37. John seems to want us to understand God's grace. Note the order again in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me, right, this is our second point, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father's giving precedes our coming, and all that he gives will come. That'll be point number four. Verse 39, Jesus says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given And so the Father gives to the Son a people. And the Father necessarily, as the sovereign God dealing with a sinful, dead mass of humanity, must choose that people. The question should never be, why are some saved and not others? The question should always be, why are any of us saved? None of us deserve that salvation. Only the gracious God choosing freely to save some. That is our only hope. We all chose and deserve hell. God is so gracious to save some. 1 Peter 2, 9. Identity is so important. You've got to know who you are. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race. You want to find Christ precious? Do you want to find peaceful, abundant, joyful life? 
find it in the realization that you did not choose God, but He, the transcendent Almighty God of the universe, God Himself chose you. John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Again, it's so clear sometimes. You're just like, wait a second. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus Christ himself says it. Colossians 3.12, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones. Paul, does that make us arrogant? Does that give us an excuse to be obnoxious, prideful, to look down upon others? What should this identity as chosen do? Don't forget that the grace is unconditional. It means it's not anything about your goodness. So what should this chosen identity do? Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's what the doctrine of God's unconditional election does. As we saw Thursday, it, it, it humbles us to the dust. Grace humbles us because it's all him and not us. He chooses, not us. I don't know, you guys know, I'm an, I'm an arrogant person. I am full of pride. And it's, like, it's a great struggle. Again, that's one we think that it's okay to, you know, like our pride, we'll admit that one in front of people because it's not a big deal. No, it's, as Peter said in Sunday, it's the biggest deal. This is the, the chief and the first sin. I don't need any help with my pride. You tell me that the difference between me and my little sister is something that I have done. My prideful heart is going to do something with that. My prideful heart is going to say, well, what's wrong with her? I got it right. I chose. It was my will that got this main thing right. No. There was nothing within me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I had no hope in self and in the world. My only hope was God's grace. And when I realize what it really is in my own heart and its depravity and inability, it humbles me to the dust. It's his doing, not mine. And again, I know there are questions. I cannot address all in a short sermon on all five points. Next week, five weeks. I'm joking. We're not going to do that. But maybe this should be a conversation starter. If you have questions, and I know that you do. That's good. It's okay to have questions. I still have questions. I'd love to talk to you after the service. So come and find me. But for now, I'm convinced. And I want you to see that you will find Christ more precious if you can see him more gracious. And that grace must include God's unconditional election. The father gives the sheep to the shepherd. Let's keep moving. Point number one. Nope. <laughs> Point number three. Counting was never, counting was never my strong suit. Uh, one, two, one. Um, yeah. Is that it? Point number three. The shepherd dies for the sheep. This is why you're here, right? Point number three. Nothing controversial there, right? The shepherd dies for the sheep. Verse 11, again, this is the main idea of this wonderful text. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This, this is the very heart and soul of the gospel. God's glory is revealed to us in the whole of his creation. What a beautiful day. Look at that garden Look at that sky. Look at the warm air. All of that is just screaming to us the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God. God's glory is revealed infinitely more majestically in the cross. It's the cross where we see God's glory. Again, nothing controversial there, but it's kind to be clear. 
define your terms. What do we really mean when we say that the shepherd dies for the sheep? We mean just that. We mean that the shepherd dies for the sheep and only for the sheep. This is referred to somewhat unhelpfully as the doctrine of limited atonement. If you want to stick with the acronym, your third blank is limited atonement. I don't like this term very much. It's not my favorite. I'm not married to any of the titles. I'm not even married to the TULIP acronym. I don't care. This one would be better named Particular Redemption. But the acronym TUPIP is not quite as... doesn't have the same ring to it. But Particular Redemption is what we're talking about here. What is the doctrine of Particular Redemption? That the shepherd dies specifically and effectively for the sheep. Jesus says it again in verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. Not for everyone. For the sheep. We just sang it. From heaven he came and sought her, the church, to be his only bride. His blood bought her. Not everyone. The sheep. The church. And listen, this one really does matter. Here's the question. What does the cross do? That's the question. What does the cross do? What does Christ accomplish on the cross? We know that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We know that God is awfully, A-W-E, holy and just. The gospel is that God himself has done something about our sin problem. And that something is Christ himself, our substitute and Savior. The gospel is that God himself has come to take the sinner's place. Christ comes to take on our sin, to live the life we were supposed to live, to die the death that we owed for not living that life, for sinfully rejecting the good God of life. The gospel is that Christ saves us from our sins by living, dying, and rising again in our place for the forgiveness of those sins. And you have not yet understood the full meaning of the cross until you see that that cross actually accomplishes your salvation. This is so important. The cross does something. The cross actually saves. And for it actually to save, it has to be particularly and definitely designed for the sheep. And so listen, this one's no small thing. This one's not some minor issue on which we can ha-ha, agree to disagree. This is the hill that I am happy to die on. Now, let me be clear. You don't have to agree with me to be a member of this church on this point. You don't have to even agree with me on this point to be a Christian. God is so gracious to us in our inconsistencies. He's so gracious to me in my inconsistency. Let's, let's, let's be clear. Right? I'm full of inconsistencies. God is gracious. And that's the case for all of us. But... To persist and insist that Christ died for all in the same way is to miss and misunderstand the preciousness of the particularity of Christ's love. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There is a major difference in saying that Christ died for everyone and that Christ died for me. The very nature of the cross and the gospel is bound up in the question for whom did Christ die? And so again, just in case there's danger of dancing around this and you missing what I'm saying, here it is. Christ did not die for everyone. Or at minimum, he did not die for everyone 
in the same way. And lots of wonderful kids going there. They're going, they're all cute. I love those kids. They're wonderful. I love my kids differently. Differently than those kids. I can love them all, but I have a particular self-sacrificing, Lord willing, saving by means through God's grace working through me, saving love for my children. They're mine. And there's something precious about the particularity of my love for them. Christ died for the sheep, period. A couple texts. I mean, if again, you're struggling with this. Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not everybody, his people. John 15, 13, Jesus lays down his life for his friends. Acts 20, 28, this is what we just sang. says, Christ obtained the church with his own blood. We just read Ephesians 1, 4. Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 7 says, in him we, that us, have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved and gave himself up for the church. There's preciousness in particularity. The shepherd dies for the sheep. But, yeah, but ultimately, we answer the question, for whom did Christ die? By first answering the question, what did Christ's death do? What did it accomplish? Is it actual or is it potential? Does the death of Christ make us savable or does it make us saved? And scripture is clear. The death of Christ saves. It actually accomplishes our salvation. Romans 5, 9. We have now been justified by his blood. His blood did it. Verse 10. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It actually accomplishes it. I said earlier, in reference to us, dead doesn't do. His death very much does do. His death actually saves. And thus, all for whom he dies will be saved. When he dies, he pays the penalty for sins. It is finished. Thus, if he died for all, all would be saved. Because his is a perfect, effective, finished work. The design of the atonement is definite. The design of his death is definite. It does something. The shepherd dies for the sheep. Spurgeon writes this. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all or all would be saved. But it is the view of the atonement which says that no one in particular was saved at the cross that actually limits Christ's death. Catch this. This is wonderful. This, this is what you need. This is, this is your hope. We say Christ died. Uh, Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that none can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. That's what I need. That's grace. Not may be saved. Are saved. Must be saved. Cannot be anything but saved. Because of God's powerful, particular grace. Listen, it is here that you will find Christ precious. 
Christian, hear Christ say to you not, oh, I just love everybody so, so much that I died for everyone. I hope that some of them will come to me. No, he says, you. You. If I do all the eyes, I'm bad at eye contact. I go around all of you that I know you. Uh, I, I, I died for you. I took your place. I took your sin against me. I particularly took that sin that you particularly committed against me, and I took that on. I suffered your wrath. I suffered your death. I did it specifically and particularly for you, and it's finished. See, particular love is precious love. Gracious love is precious love. And listen, I know this one is particularly hard. You know, I, I get that. I, I, I'm with you. John 3.16 always comes. I preached a whole sermon on this back on John 3.16. Please go back and listen to it. Um, I don't think John 3.16 says what you think that it says. Go, go listen to the sermon if you want. We just don't have time. The question is always, what does God's word say? What brings God glory? What most reveals his grace? It is a particular, affecting, saving, substitutionary death. The shepherd dies for the sheep. Verse 15. He gives the sheep eternal life. Verse 28. That means that he cannot be dying for all. Because those for whom he dies, he says he gives eternal life. The cross of Christ actually accomplishes our salvation. And I, I'm fully convinced that you will find that far, far more comforting than the cross making our salvation possible if only we can get our act together and choose correctly. That's not, it's just not grace. It's not. And grace is everything. Point number four. And grace is irresistible. The shepherd calls the sheep. This is the doctrine of irresistible grace. This is your fourth blank. Put a slash. Again, not my favorite title. Everyone likes the idea of grace. But for grace to be truly grace, it must be irresistible. What does that mean? First, where is it in the text? Well, we've seen this one already. Um, look at verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Right, they're following. What's that voice then doing? Well, if they're following, the voice must be calling. Right, we've already seen this as the second thing the shepherd does for the sheep. The shepherd calls the sheep. Look again back at verse 3. Look at the first thing that we saw. He calls his own sheep by name. Verse 4, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The shepherd calls the sheep. It's just there. To what? what why is he calling them? Into verse 3. says that he is leading them out. Verse 9, through him uh, the sheep find pasture. Pasture is food. Food is life. In calling them out, he is calling them out of death into life. He is, verse 10, calling them to the abundant life that he came to give. Verse 28, he gives them eternal life. Hey, what happens when Jesus gives someone eternal life? He tells us they will never perish. See, that is an effective giving. And that's what we mean by irresistible grace. Again, I don't think this one's the best title either. We hear irresistible and we may envision something like God saying, you don't want to be saved, ha ha, too bad. I'm going to drown, I'm going to force you to be saved. Or the opposite, where often these doctrines are presented as, ha ha, you want to be saved, but too bad, you're not 
one of the elect, and so you cannot uh, be saved. No, that's not how it works. That's not how Scripture portrays it ever. And so this would be one, uh, would be better termed something like effectual grace. Or again, if that's a weird word, effectual, just effective. Effective grace. And by that, we just simply mean that grace works. Just like the cross actually accomplishes our salvation, God's grace effectually accomplishes our regeneration. His grace works. He doesn't work against our will. None are willing. Go read Romans 3. None would come to him. But for those who are his, he, the good shepherd, graciously makes us willing. How? He takes those dead hearts and he replaces them with living hearts. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new mind so that we can now see sin for what it is. I don't know when exactly I was saved. I don't know when that is. And that's not a big deal. But I, you know, I can find about when the break is when I really, really loved my sin and pursued it with my whole being willfully and joyfully. And then all of a sudden, that sin looking really, really different to me. That's God's regenerating grace. That's the new heart and the new eyes. Now seeing sin for what it is and thus now seeing him for what he is we then very happily and willingly come to him. In other words, what we're saying here is we come back to this, we say this a lot, uh, regeneration precedes faith. That's what we're saying here when we talk about God's grace being effective. Regeneration, that's the new birth. You must be born again. You're dead, so you need life. Regeneration. But regeneration precedes faith. Most of us grew up believing or hearing, believe so that you can be born again. Believe, and the, co- the effect of that will be the new birth. Biblically, scripturally, it's God's grace that causes the new birth, which then results in our faith. Baby Gia is here, and baby Gia is alive. She was born at 508 or something yesterday. Mom and baby are healthy and happy. It was a long and difficult uh, labor. Mom labors hard for hours and hours and brings new life into the world. And then... The baby cries out. There's Vera crying out in the back. Perfect timing. Then the baby cries out in response. The work has been done. The life has been given. Faith. Response. Cry. Jesus goes to the tomb. We're getting to 11, chapter 11 next, uh, in two weeks. And chapter 11 is just the illustration of this. Lazarus is dead. Jesus speaks and gives him new life. And then Lazarus responds in walking out of the tomb. That's grace. Regeneration, God's work, precedes faith, our response. Grace works. And so by irresistible or effectual, we just mean good news, that God's grace is stronger than our sin. God's good will is greater than our evil will. And that's such good news. If you could just get an honest look at your heart, if you could just see it as God does, dead, desperately sick, deceitful, above all else, wicked, evil, if you could see how willingly and joyfully you choose sin and self, Christian, how willingly and joyfully we are still prone to do that, even after God saves us. If we could see that, then there is nothing more that we would love than a powerful, effective, saving grace. And that's what God's grace is and does. He doesn't make us savable. He doesn't make it possible for us to be saved. He saves us. 
We're not floundering around in the water, maybe going to drown, but if we could just grab the lifeline and pull ourselves into the boat, we will live. No, we're dead on the bottom of the ocean, lifeless. And the gospel is that Christ comes down and gets us and breathes new life into our dead hearts. That's amazing grace. The shepherd calls the sheep. Point three, the shepherd dies for the sheep, so that point four, the shepherd can call the sheep to life. The shepherd saves the sheep. God's grace is effective. And finally, five, very briefly, no controversy here. The sheep never perish. Oh, the wonderful and life-sustaining doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is the perseverance of the saints. Again, I said it earlier, verse 28. Don't miss it. If there's stuff you're still sorting out, if you have questions, if you haven't been paying attention, come back to me now. I'm almost done. Verse 28. Don't miss this. Why all of that? Why depravity to election, to atonement, to grace? Because if all of that is true, then this is true. And in this sin-cursed, profoundly broken, desperately dark world, with your and my fickle and fearful and sometimes cold and conflicted heart, you have to have this. Without this, the abundant life, you're not going to experience it. This is what you need. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. More, Jesus. Give me more. More comfort. More assurance. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Whatever is the greatest. End of Romans 8. Whatever you are most concerned about separating you from the love of Christ. It's my heart that the thing that most concerns me. The Father is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There it is. That's what I need. That's my only hope. Not that I will hold him fast, but that he will hold me fast. And look how certain and sure Christ wants us to be of this. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's not enough. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's not enough. I and the Father are one. That is a commitment, a promise, a guarantee from God himself that you are safe and secure in his almighty hands. And it is all by grace. And what I want you to see is that all of this goes together. It all hangs together. It's a coherent, logical system. One thing leading to the next, all of them dependent upon the others. You take away one block, you lose them all. And back in 1610, the original Arminians got this. Their fifth point was that if faith is ultimately up to your will at the beginning then it is ultimately up to your will at the end. If you can choose your salvation, then you can lose your salvation. And at least they're consistent. They're right. If the first is true, then the second follows. Thankfully, most have denied this point. Thankfully, there's glorious inconsistency uh, today among our Arminian uh, brothers um, on this point. But it doesn't follow unless the first four are true. What a wretched hopeless, despairing, disheartening idea. If I can lose my salvation, I'm out. I'm done. If I can lose it, I will lose it. If this is true, I have no hope. If you knew my heart, you would know that. If you knew your heart, 
you would know that. There's no hope in me, no hope in and of ourselves. If it is dependent upon me to stand fast and firm, unflinching and unfailing, then take me now. But God, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I will never perish. No one will snatch me out of his hands. Philippians 1, 6, Paul is sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. God's saving grace is also a sustaining grace. God's beginning grace is a finishing grace. It is grace at the beginning. It is grace in the middle. And it is grace all the way to the end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The saints will persevere because God preserves his saints. So again, the whole point of this is I want you to see how good grace is. Do you see how gracious Christ is? This is the preciousness of the good shepherd found in the graciousness of the good shepherd. In our sin and death, he chooses us for life. He dies for our life. He calls us to life and then preserves us to the end for eternal life. Those are the doctrines of grace. And those are the only way that God gets all the glory that he deserves for saving sinners like us. And so let me clarify one more time as we close. This is the only reason I will sometimes use the term Calvinism. This is the reason I'm not embarrassed by the term Calvinism. Spurgeon puts it like this in his autobiography. I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It's just a nickname to call it that. It's the gospel and nothing else. And the term doesn't really matter. I don't care. You won't hear me use it again for a while. We teach and preach these glorious doctrines of grace, not because some man or any man taught them, but because they are the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of God Himself about who He is in His glory and grace. And I am firmly convinced that you will find Christ more precious as you find Him more precious. Gracious. And listen, I know that from experience. By the grace of God, the more that I have understood His graciousness, it has only been then by His grace that I'm truly, finally just beginning to see how glorious and good and precious Christ is. I want you to see that. As the great Reformed Baptist preacher over in Jersey, Al Martin, used to say, Calvinism can be summarized in those Pregnant three words, God saves sinners. That's it. That's it. That's all that I mean. That's all that you need. We just sang it. You are saved by grace and grace alone. And so know that grace. Study that grace. Meditate on that grace. Bring that grace to mind again and again and again every single day. And in so doing, get a sight of the glory of Christ. Think on Him. Rest and rejoice in Him. Fill your mind with Him and do so by better understanding His preciousness in His graciousness. Let's stop and let's close with a word of prayer. Bow with me. Father, we thank You that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing, but it is a gift from You. We thank You that You are the God who gives. We thank you that you are the God of all grace. We thank you that you are the God who solves the problems that we create. 
Father, our only hope is in you. Father, please forgive me if in any way my design and desire in this message is to win an argument or to be proud or arrogant or gloat in a theological system. Father, may our only and ultimate goal be Christ. Father, may our desire truly be to know him better and to find abundant life in him. May our only desire to know and understand the doctrines of grace be so that we can understand and love the good shepherd of the doctrines of grace. So, Father, show us Christ. That is all that we need. Show us Christ by showing us his grace. Show us our hopelessness and our helplessness and our sin. And show us how good and glorious you are to actually save us from that sin. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we have no hope. We thank you that we have great hope in Jesus Christ. Father, may your spirit by your word now do its work in our heart. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Jesus.